continuing this summer with a series of uh, texts drawn from the pastoral epistles. I'll be reading today uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God. There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man, for she is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light. In your truth, find freedom, and in your will, discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As I indicated last week, I'm preaching a summer sermon series entitled Jewels in the Attic. The sermons come from a less-read portion of the Bible toward the end of the New Testament, known as the Pastoral Epistles, the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus. Like items tucked away in the attic, these short books rarely draw our sermonic attention. They come from an earlier time, no longer seeming to be relevant to ours, antiquated, old-fashioned, out of date. Yet like trunks in our attics, these pastoral epistles contain items that elicit beautiful memories within our hearts and items that elicit painful memories best hidden away and perhaps forgotten. Occasionally, even within items that contain painful memories, we may find a family jewel, 
a pearl of great price, a treasure that is buried but is truly a treasure. Today's sermon deals with a passage from 1 Timothy that most of us in the mainline Protestant tradition have long ago tucked away in the attic. Many of the verses that we read today both sound antiquated and violate our deep sense of equality among women and men. In a letter addressed to Timothy, written by Paul or one of his protégés, to be read to small house churches that had been established within the Roman Empire, the writer urges Christians to live a quiet, under-the-radar existence. I urge that supplications be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high places, so that we may lead a peaceable life. The writer calls these early Christians not to draw too much attention to themselves so that they can not be noticed by the dominant Roman authorities. Continuing with his emphasis on prayer, the writer then turns his attention to the roles women and men should play in these early congregations. He calls for men to pray, lifting holy hands without anger or argumentation, and women to dress modestly, remain silent, exercise no authority over men, and expect salvation through the bearing of children. Let a woman learn in silence and with full submission. This writer writes. In 2014, when I attended the Movable, Preach, Pre, Movable Feast Preaching Seminar, a group with which I've been a member for 30-something years, our scholar that year was Tom Long. Tom spoke at length about the pastoral epistles, and a lot of what he said has in, is informing this series I'm doing. Of this particular text... Tom said, I do not blame you if you choose not to go into this gothic chamber of horrors <laughs> to try to recover the family jewels. Tom was saying that for reasons psychological, spiritual, or theological, it is understandable to conclude that we have stopped learning or hearing the gospel in this passage and that it is acceptable to take a time out from this passage and from others like it. In other words, it is fine for us to put such passages in the attic for another day or for no day at all. But before we climb through the dark stairwell leading to the attic, I would like us to see if there is anything we can learn from this text, as difficult and offensive as it is, anything that might lead us to keep it on the living room shelf 
rather than relegate it to the attic. I ask you to follow me along through the rest of this sermon and to see if and how this text might function constructively for us today. Now, in the Bible that most of you have ordered, if you have taken a Bible class from me, there is an essay at the end by the Old Testament scholar Phyllis Tribble called Authority in the Bible. Tribble writes, From ancient times on, individuals and communities of faith have adhered to the authority of the Bible because they believe that God created it. They believe that God is its author. For some believers, this idea assumes literal form. God spoke the words of the Bible to Moses face to face and to others who followed Moses. In turn, she writes, these recipients worked as scribes or mediators. In this belief, the words that they transmitted equal the word of God. But Tribble then goes on to say that challenges and refutations to literal claims of divine authorship evolved throughout the centuries. For the reformer Martin Luther, the revelation in Jesus Christ is the criterion that establishes the authority of the Bible. Luther even rejected books that he deemed unworthy of Christ, Esther, James, and Revelation. For Luther, God did not authorize all the words of the Bible. For John Calvin, authority did not lie in the words themselves, but in the activity of the Holy Spirit at work, both in the words on the page, but also in believers, individually and corporately. In this regard, the Protestant Reformation, which is the heritage in which we stand, subordinated the words written on the page to the transcendent Word of God, which is known through our relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. Thus, along these lines, when in our passage the writer of 1 Timothy says that women should dress modestly, learn in silence, have no authority over men, and be saved through childbearing, it is well within our power based on our relationship to God through the Holy Spirit, to conclude that the writer more reflects the attitudes of his own day and time than attitudes that lie at the heart and mind of God. When we genuinely conclude that the Spirit of God is not speaking through this passage, at least for us, we are allowed to put it in the attic. 
But such a conclusion cannot help but lead us to ask, do we really have the right to make such a choice? Do we have the right to include that one part of the Bible has authority for us while another part doesn't? That one part bears witness to God's word while another part bears no such witness? To this question, Tribble points to the 30th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. In this chapter, God, through Moses, is addressing the people of Israel as they are preparing to enter the promised land. Having provided Israel with his word, the Torah, God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying Him, and holding fast to Him. For that means life to you. When I was in high school, I once drove from the suburbs of Memphis into the central city to hear a Nobel Prize winning scientist speak at what is now Rhodes College. Now, I have little or no aptitude for science. And as I look back on it, I think the only reason I went to this lecture was because I thought a girl was going to be there. But she wasn't. And the lecture turned out to be about nuclear proliferation, which was well beyond my range of knowledge, but was drawing interest from college students while we were still deeply involved in Vietnam. What I remember as vividly as if it happened yesterday is that the speaker ended the lecture with these words. I am not a religious person, he said, but on my desk I keep these words from Deuteronomy. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. This passage has never left me since. Triple rights, choice characterizes biblical authority. And choice covers the entire Bible, including Adam and Eve arguing in the garden over precisely what God said and didn't say, and including Jesus and Satan combating one another over the meaning of Scripture during Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. A passage, Tribble continues, a passage that curses today in one setting may bless tomorrow in another setting. The responsibility to make the right choice between blessing and curse belongs to the reader. And the Bible itself 
authorizes this right and duty of discernment. As we seek to choose life within a particular passage of Scripture, Tribble asks us to draw a distinction between texts that are prescriptive, texts that prescribe a course of action for us, and texts that are descriptive, texts that reveal something about the human condition. She points out that many narratives and much poetry resonate with readers because these texts mirror and express the human condition. Even repugnant stories of scripture, she says, tales of violence and vice, of injustice and iniquity, argue for the power of description. To none of these violent texts would we respond, go thou and do likewise. Tribble is saying that even when texts are offensive and violent, they can be mirrors given to us for our own reflection. By reading them, we may be able to see ourselves and our world. We may be able to come to understanding, to decision, and even to repentance. To apply this to one element of the reading that we had today, it is entirely appropriate to view a verse such as women shall be saved through childbearing as revealing how even something as beautiful as the gift of childbirth when made exclusive or normative can be off-putting, hurtful, damaging to many women and men in the church and in the world who choose not to have children, who long for children but cannot have them, who have had children and lost them, who have not found a person they love with whom to have children, who have not been able to adopt children, who have reared stepchildren only to lose them later in life. I am not willing to say that a passage like this functions as the Word of God in a legal or prescriptive sense. I am willing to say that such a passage can be the Word of God as it shows us the spiritual and psychological danger of limiting the role of women to one otherwise beautiful aspect of life. We choose life when we read this passage and through it see a way that the narrowness of our own words and ideas can actually set life back. 
And finally, we choose life in a passage like ours when we see it point to meanings that are more transcendent than its original authors understood or maybe even intended. I've been reminded this week that the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. And yet 11 years later, we adopted a constitution which allowed southern states to count slaves as three-fifths of a person. Over time and history, however, the phrase all men are created equal has proved to have much more power and much more meaning than its original crafters realized. Likewise, in our passage today, when the writer says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings should be made for everyone, for kings and those in high places, the writer may not have been aware of the true power to which his words pointed. In a context in which the emperor is considered to be divine, to include the king or emperor as the object of the same prayers offered for everyone and to pray for the king rather than to the king was to put on paper, perhaps unknowingly, words that would provide a hint of equality, a seed of democracy, and perhaps even the beginnings of a revolution. This is but one way that the Holy Spirit helps us as we read Scripture to choose life. Even in a text that has been in the attic for a long time, a text that we may indeed put back in the attic, but a text which, through what it reveals rather than what it prescribes, just may become for us through the Holy Spirit, God's Word. Amen.